Mahaya Kita. friends i'm back so this is happening this way for now because there were some it issues uh at my university but they were amazing and helped me this morning several people were just incredible so i think we're going to be back to norm whatever that means soon but also I'm having computer issues at the same time and I'm on quarantine so I can't exactly go get these things fixed and I hear campus is also kind of on lockdown so I don't know that I could even go there if I wanted to Um, but again we're here because this is the new way and we have some waves and some waves and some radio waves back to radio isn't it interesting There's a lot to talk about, but I have to make this particular episode sort of a quilt of weaves of different ways, and let's see if you can connect the dots again. I have to gear this particular podcast tonight toward my core senior SEM class because I tried to do a class today, and it went okay on existentialism. And we recorded it, but it was not exactly easy or the best and had some problems. And I don't think a three-hour class is going to be doable tonight. So you are all aware of this already. And I just wanted to give you a heads up to anyone else listening out there in the radio land, in the radio wave land of sound, that we are doing this specifically tonight for the themes that would have been covered, at least some of them, in a three-hour-long senior class called Beyond Belief. And what we're doing tonight, though, has to do with the Max Weber question. Now you're wondering what the Max Weber question might be. And if you are in core senior sem, you better not be wondering. (laughs) Um, But remember that I didn't design this course, although now I've taught it twice. This is the third time, and I am responsible for what you are doing. And this is something that I did choose for the class. And it happens to be on the problem of Orientalism and the West versus East binary. And that is a very sensitive topic, but a very important one. So I'm going to choose my words carefully. I'm going to make this podcast into a bunch of fragments. So you can skip ahead, folks, if you're not interested in whatever the fragment is that happens to come on. And I'm going to also add sound effects. And you'll get those as we go. And we'll go from here. So what is the Max Weber question? Max Weber. Okay. The Weberian question. Why, quote, why did only the West break through to modern capitalism while conversely 
the East was doomed to remain in poverty, end quote. That is one of the main questions we will be exploring tonight. And considering what's happening with our stock market, perhaps this will be of interest to other folks listening. And I do want to also start with some existentialism so that this can overlap with my intro class. And I have a quote here from Audre Lorde. I feel, therefore I am free. And I just want anyone out there to know that I do feel everything, maybe too much. And that if you have any questions for me, whether you're in these classes or not, I am easy to find, usually over sound waves. People hack, 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 hack me all the time. So that's very interesting. My Apple podcast or my uh, Apple music was hacked and my account at school roger williams might have been hacked and we don't know we don't know it's just it's it's a very complex times and i have to say roger williams is doing an amazing job considering and they were again ahead of the curve on this one and they're trying to remain that way so i do um want to let you know that we're doing the best we can i know you know this already because you are all also going through this we are all doing the best we can with what we got Okay, so here's how things are going to go today, especially for my Beyond Belief class. Hello to you all. I wish I could be with you. Uh, I will do this in fragments and segments with some sound effects and music and everything in between. Uh, And so we will go from here and... If you can, just keep listening. I'll try not to make it too long for those who may be listening who are not in the Beyond Belief class, but this will have a little bit of an existential theme tonight for my intro students as well. Uh, And let me give you some references while we can, (laughs) while we're here talking. We, who's the we? The listeners, the audience, the textual motion of the voice out to the audience, me and you, I and thou, we and they, the other, we are the others, we are the other. We're going to talk about all that stuff because we're going to be reading from the post-colonial science and technology studies reader, uh, and we're going to be particularly reading the Hobson for tonight. You all had to do the John Hobson essay that I chose, Discovering the Oriental West, and the Max Weber question that was already posited at the beginning of this episode. And I believe there was a little three-minute power bar in there if you needed a little pick-me-up, a little food for thought. Haha, <laughs> see? Get it? And that was in there, too, in the podcast, if you're interested. But I believe this is going to be S1, E3, you know, and we'll go from there. But it is particularly geared toward the Beyond Belief class because we had to change how our class is is running tonight. And I I do apologize for that, but there's nothing I can do. 
about that. So first things first, your music tracks. Your music tonight is coming from, thank you, the head and the heart. Haha. <laughs> and the tracks are named Library Magic. That's right. You know, I do like to read. It's just really hard for me. And when you're writing a doctoral dissertation and you have three editors, forget it. Especially when the whole world doesn't believe you about, you know, what you're going through, what you've survived, how hard things are. So I get it about the reading thing. And I think a lot out there have some questions for me about that. Feel free to knock on my door. Call me. Many of you have my number, email, I'm easy to find. You know, 10 years ago, I had to make a decision. Am I going to stay in academia or not? One, it was too hard at the time. Two, I had survived incomprehensible, the incomprehensible apparently. And I knew I would always be locatable. I would always be public. So I had to make a decision and here I am. So you can find me and... If you need to talk about anything, even from our class, anything that comes up, anything you're wondering about from the past, anything in the present, (laughs) and even a little bit of the future, you know, for those out there listening to Dr. Mark Epstein interview Laura Lynn, you know what I'm talking about, even anything from the future, you know, there are ways to talk about these things rationally, philosophically, even if they're metaphysical, Kant may be wrong about that. So my modern class, we can talk about that later. Um, But the other track, before I forget here, I'm winging it. The other track is from Common, Like Water from Chocolate. So what a great album. So there are your references, The Head and the Heart, Common, and Discovering the Oriental West by John Hobson. And the Max Weber question. So... Let us go from here. Let us start again. Let us do what we can. All of us tonight here together today, whenever you're listening to it. When I say us or we, I'm referring to my class. Uh, I don't have multiple personalities, although that might be interesting and fun. (laughs) So really just talking about I, thou, uh, we, you, they, the other, and the subject, we are the other, we are the others, all of that, and many of you know what I'm talking about. We're going to go from here and do the best that we can with what we got, like I said in the opening segment. So here we go. Alternately, however, the Greek word logos also comes from the root word lego, meaning to pick up gather together, to choose, to arrange. Thus, contained in the roots of the traditional definition is also the key to a more kinetic definition of ontology, one that highlights the material activity of picking up, selecting, gathering, drawing together, and arranging of being. The word Lego explicitly emphasizes the kinetic activity of the hand, and thus of gesture, that picks up and puts together. Graphism. Following this alternate definition, we can offer a reinterpretation of ontological practice as a kinetic activity comprising two distinct but interrelated gestural or kinographic actions, description and inscription. Ontology is descriptive, 
in the sense in which it is a picking out and picking up that removes D something from a previous graphic or material arrangement, but also inscriptive insofar as it produces a new gathering together in of the graphic. By this definition, an ontological description can no longer be understood as a representation or reflection of being in itself in thought. Description is active and creative. It selects something from the world and removes it from where it was already inscribed or gathered. Once it has been removed from one region, it can appear as the content of a new form gathered on a surface, the inscription. A bit of charcoal, for example, can be removed from a campfire and used as a writing implement, leaving a trace of itself on a new surface of inscription, a wall. In this sense, the Greek word logos should be understood as a dimension of the more primary graphic and kinetic act of the hand that gathers and marks. Ontology is thus fundamentally kinographic. Okay, so that little two-minute ditty that you just heard was by the philosopher Thomas Nail, who teaches in Colorado and has, well, a bunch of incredible works, but particularly that segment was from his amazing work, Being in Motion, which I got permission to sound segment check yourself got a little permission there to do some clips of sound from that audiobook so thank you professor nail and um we'll go from here i'm going to start with the hops and quotes and some of you know what i'm talking about so let me just say this is the opening quote from discovering the oriental west ruth benedict writes history cannot be written as if it belonged to one group of people alone Civilization has been gradually built up. Sorry about that. Civilization has been gradually built up now out of the contributions of one group, now of another. When all civilization is ascribed to the Europeans, or the West, the claim is the same one which any anthropologist can hear any day from primitive tribes, only they tell the story of themselves. They too believe that all that is important in the world begins and ends with them. We smile when such claims are made, but ridicule might just as well be turned against ourselves. Provincialism may rewrite history and play up only the achievements of the historian's own group, but it remains provincialism. That was Ruth Benedict. And then the other quote by Eric Wolf that opened up your reading for tonight's class. We have been taught inside the classroom and outside of it that there exists an entity called the West and that one can think of this West as a society and civilization independent of and in opposition to other societies and civilizations, i.e. the East. Many of us even grew up believing that this West has an autonomous genealogy, according to which ancient Greece beget Rome, Rome beget Christian Europe, Christian Europe beget the Renaissance, the Renaissance the Enlightenment, the Enlightenment political democracy, and the Industrial Revolution. Industry, crossed with democracy, in turn yielded the United States, embodying the rights to life, 
liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This is misleading. First, because it turns history into a moral success story, a race in time in which each western runner of the race passes on the torch of liberty to the next relay. History is thus converted into a tale about the furtherance of virtue, about how the virtuous, i.e. the West, went out over the bad guys, or the East. And that was Eric Wolf. So that opened your Hobson reading, folks, and just to give some context to those other folks that might be listening who are not in our class... I'm just going to read a little bit more here and then we'll talk and then I'll do a song and then we'll do some, I'll do some sound effects and I'll try, try to make this interesting for you. Most of us naturally assume that the East and the West are and always have been separate and different entities. We also generally believe that it is the autonomous or pristine West that has alone pioneered the creation of the modern world. At least this is what many of us are taught at school, if not at university. Us, a side tangent here, not in my class. Right? We typically assume that the pristine West had emerged at the top of the world by about 1492. Just think of Christopher Columbus. Owing to its uniquely ingenious scientific rationality, rational restlessness, and democratic progressive properties. From then, the traditional view has it, the Europeans spread outward, conquering the East, colonizing, we might say, right? Conquering the East and Far West, while simultaneously laying down the tracks of capitalism, along which the whole world could be delivered from the jaws of deprivation and misery into the bright light of modernity. Accordingly, it seemed entirely natural or self-evident to most of us to conflate the progressive story of world history with the rise and triumph of the West. This traditional view can be called Eurocentric, or Eurocentrism, for at its heart is the notion that the West properly deserves to occupy the center stage of progressive world history, both past and present. And Hobson then says, but does it? Now, I'm going to stop here and use a current example. I am not in any way, shape, or form, and please, if anybody is out there listening who has intent to harm or critique or come after these podcasts, again, I've been given permission to do them in these difficult, challenging times when we are trying to come up with creative ways to still give you the education you deserve and I do not speak for Roger Williams University. I'm an independent scholar and I have academic freedom, et cetera, et cetera. But let me use a current example, and I am not critiquing anybody who is working on this horrific, perfect storm of a problem that we now have with COVID-19. But I think we can use an example here uh, of what Hobson is talking about we are supposed to be, the United States is supposed to be the country in the world that is ahead of the game, has a lot of money, has good health care, has good education, has baseball and apple pie, right? But we have a lot of problems, and that is not an accurate depiction, although I will keep the baseball and the apple pie, and I think you would too. 
when we're all sitting at a baseball game together, let's say the Pittsburgh Pirates or the Boston Red Sox, although we'll see how they won that World Series, won't we? Um, but we were all sitting at a baseball game together, talking for hours, listening to the sounds, smelling the smells and watching the game, paying attention to the talent on the field and the friends and family by our sides. I really don't think we are bitching about capitalism. We are, in fact, embracing one of the positive aspects of the country that we live in and the freedoms that we have. So please remember that I said that. But I think we can use this current COVID-19 as crisis, as an example of where capitalism has gone wrong. We have, and I have nurses in my family, my grandmother who has passed over on whatever through <laughs> is, was a nurse, is still kind of a nurse, and my cousin is a nurse in her wake. And my cousin right now is dealing with, in, in her own hospital, uh, not having enough possibly not having enough uh, protective PPE, protective, personal protective equipment, face masks and all that. And they are, there's a lot of stress and they are running into potential, maybe not her hospital exactly at the moment, but they could, but there are many places running into problems already. And we haven't even hit the peak of this problem in the United States. And, and what is one of the many problems that's happening? And again, you can look this up. You can listen to the governors, all the governors talk about it. Uh, what are one of the, or many of them, what are one of the problems we're running into? The governors need the equipment and they need to get it to their hospitals. They can't find enough equipment and now are competing with other states for that equipment. They're putting in orders with private companies, because we're a capitalist nation, with private industries for what they need, and those orders are getting canceled, they're getting delayed, the company doesn't have enough, not the company's fault maybe, right? Can't make enough in time, other states need the exact same equipment, and now where are we at? We're at a place where our government nationally is, our leaders on the national level are saying the past week or more, and you can go listen to the news reports, go look it up, um, are saying to our governors, you're on your own. We're helping as best we can. We want to help you. We're going to keep helping you. We are helping you, and they are, but you're also on your own. Well, you can't be on your own in a capitalist system with a crisis like this because that means you're actually at the mercy of the folks making the equipment and some of this, and then selling the equipment, and those folks can sell it to whoever they want. And they might not want to sell it to Alabama. They might, in fact, want to sell it to Michigan or et cetera, or vice versa. So this is a good example of the problem of where we are not considered a capitalist nation, the West, where the Enlightenment, the Renaissance, and you know our European history has benefited us at the moment, because in many ways it has, but we as a capitalist nation now, and as a nation that the United States doesn't give health care to all of its citizens, and in fact, having health insurance is quite difficult for many and quite expensive and sometimes you have to choose between having it and not having it paying for health insurance or putting food on the table for your children which one of those two would you pick right so 
we have a problem with capitalism right here and now, right in our current situation. So Hobson goes on to talk about the 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 problem of the binary east-west, the east-west, right? And he says things like, the east enabled the rise of the west through two main processes, diffusionism and assimilationism and appropriationism, appropriationism. First, the Easterners created a global economy and global communications network after 500, along which the more advanced Eastern, quote, resource portfolios, Eastern ideas, institutions, technologies, diffused across the West, where they were subsequently assimilated through what I call Oriental globalization. And second, Western imperialism after about 1492, so the 500 was the year 500, but after about 1492 led the Europeans to appropriate all manner of Eastern economic resources to enable the rise of the West. In short, the West did not autonomously uh, pioneer its own development in the absence of Eastern help, for its rise would have been inconceivable without the contributions of the East, period. The task of the book, then, this book that this essay is in, and also his essay, uh, is to trace the manifold Eastern contributions that led to the rise of what he calls the Oriental West. Now we can talk about this, and we would we would have been talking about this in our three-hour night course tonight, but we don't have that opportunity. So we will take another opportunity to talk about this differently. And you can always send me your questions. You know this, and you can call me on the phone. Uh, but so Hobson wants us to discuss uh, these kinds of problems. And I already told you what the Max Weber question was, and that's where the essay is also headed. Um, he he goes on to, to talk about some of the debate around this uh, problem of Eurocentrism and Eurocentric thinking and the binary East-West. It's not really an accurate binary. And although there is a lot of credit we can give to ancient Greece, and you heard in my other podcasts even to the East and Confucius and many others, uh, there's a lot of credit we can give to both. But is it really two? Is it really both? Is it as if they are different sides uh, of the story or something. It doesn't seem to be that clear cut. There is not a East, an East and a West where one is more advanced than the other. And Hobson goes on to talk about W.E.B. Du Bois and one of the um, Uh, One of the the contexts that he puts this into, he says, or in a narrow context from the above of what we've been talking about, as W.E.B. Du Bois explained in the foreword to his important book, Africa in World History, quote, there has been a consistent effort to rationalize Negro slavery by omitting Africa from world history. That's why, tangent, that's why some of you sometimes still to this day might think of Africa as, you know, a country, but it's a continent with many countries. And I find it really interesting when college students don't realize that. 
and I don't fault you for it, but I want you to recognize why would you not know by the time you were in college that Africa was a continent full of rich history of its own and many countries and that we all come from Africa, the human species comes from Africa. And so there is a lot to discuss there. And so Hobson says, there has been a consistent effort to rationalize Negro slavery by omitting Africa from world history so that today it is almost universally assumed that history can be truly written without reference to Negroid peoples. Therefore, I am seeking in this book, and this is W.E.B. Du Bois, to remind readers of how critical a part Africa has played in human history, past and present. End quote. So let me just stop there, give you some moments to reflect. Let me gather some notes. I think I'm going to read from some of your own answers without naming names and talk about some of your, your own homework on this tonight and see what you have had to say. So I'm going to give you a little interlude here while I go gather some notes. Okay, so let me read from some of student work without naming any names. Let me uh, read that there are students in our class in Beyond Belief who are understanding it on different levels, what the Hobson reading, and in general, our discussion of meritocracy. And I'll kind of end on that note today, but let me read some of your responses. So, quote, in the the question was it, what is hobson's main points and uh what does the west owe to the east and one of you wrote quote in the western world we are collectively very eurocentric which basically means that we conflate the progressive story of world history with the triumph of the west we do not typically recognize that the west and the east have been quote fundamentally and consistently interlinked through globalization ever since 500 CE, end quote. So you were quoting the Hobson essay there. Excellent. Back to your answer, this particular student. Hobson suggests that the East provided a, quote, crucial role in enabling the rise of Western civilization, end quote, and states the fact that Eastern societies were more advanced than Western societies between 500 and 1800, uh, CE. Globally, the East gave the world the economy and global communications and, and gave, gave the world economy to the, to the West to develop, um, and it kind of went from there. So historically, the West would not have been able to gain power without the ideas and help of the East at all, uh, but this that is not taught in Western curriculum on average. So those are part of your answers for tonight's homework. Let me keep going. The next question had to do with what are some of the examples Hobson uses to demonstrate how the West and Western science in particular, since we're in the science part of our semester, uh, have borrowed ideas from the East unjustly or without credit. And one of you wrote, Hobson addresses the fact that the West and Western science in particular have borrowed ideas from the East and have not given the proper credit, uh, given the East proper credit for these borrowed, quote, borrowed ideas. 
The most interesting example of this was how the British claim that the British Industrial Revolution was the first, when really it was the Chinese. And one of you wrote, I had no idea about this. Well, this is the beauty of learning and university education, although probably should have learned it sooner. Nothing against your teachers. Our teachers are amazing, and, um, and I'm glad they're there. But continuing on, Hobson goes on to say that, quote, to my claim that China achieved an industrial miracle during the 11th century, Eurocentric historians often reply by invoking one of the China clauses, end quote. The clause dismisses its significance by insisting that it was, quote, an abortive revolution, end quote. And that's the end of it, right? And that's the problem, if that's the response. With the Chinese economy subsequently reverting back to its normal state of relative supposed stagnation. In this way, such theorists were able to preserve their claim that the British Industrial Revolution was truly the first. This same clause uh, example was also unjustly, unjustifiably used against Islamic societies when dealing with the Western Renaissance and the Scientific Revolution. Now, I have to say, and, and that was the end of your answer, but I have to say that that is partly true, and it is partly not not wholly true. In other words, that is true, but it's not the only thing that's going on. Uh, there is a lot of science that is used around the world today that did have some of its origins in the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, uh, for better or worse, in Europe. And I'm thinking here particularly of folks like Galileo's telescopes and Francis Bacon's scientific method, although we could talk about influences there. And I do know that there was some influence of Confucius on Spinoza, but um, Spinoza being um, one of the people who tried to come up with three branches of government for the democratic West and tried to start sort of had the beginnings of what we would call neuroscientific thought today. And so there, there's a lot there. And of course, Nietzsche and psychology, uh, Freud often credits a lot to Nietzsche in human psychology. Now, there's a lot of overlaps, and Nietzsche is certainly not considered Renaissance or Enlightenment, right, area, time period. He was only 100, 150 years ago. Uh, so, but this is true, what you're learning in Hobson, but with qualification. So we always have to try to do that where we can and balance those two things. So the next question was, what are some of the other injustices mentioned in Hobson's reading? Do you agree with the Conclusions, why or why not? And then I asked for page references. So one of you wrote, quote, along with Western science, Hobson mentions other injustices that the West inflicted on the East. For example, the Crusades occurred as a Western response to anti-Islamic ideas, quote, from Hobson. This was vital to the construction of Christendom, which in turn enabled consolidation of the feudal economy of the feudal economic and political system as it emerged around the end of the first millennium, end quote. That is all true. There's also a lot of Plato in the beginning of Christianity. Uh, so we just say here, and that's part of our course, right? That's why the course is called Beyond Belief. We talk about the hard stuff in a respectful way in organized religion and dogmatic thinking, but we also talk about the hard stuff in a respectful way, hopefully a creatively respectful way as well, um, in the dogmatic thinking in Western science and scientific structures at times. So back to your answer. 
One of the most interesting quotes I found from the reading was that, this quote, Hobson wrote, the West was imagined as superior to the East. The imagined values of the interior East were set up as the antithesis of the rational Western values. Specifically, the West was imagined as being inherently blessed with unique virtues. It was rational, hardworking, productive, sacrificial, and parsimonious, liberal, democratic, honest, paternal and mature, advanced, ingenious, proactive, independent, progressive, and dynamic. The East was then cast as the West's opposite, the other with a capital O. So if my existential folks, if you intro folks are listening here, um, the East was cast as the West's other with a capital O. And that's in the negative sense of the other. When we were talking about existentialism earlier today, it was, it was a more positive sense of the other. We'll talk about both. No worries. As irrational and arbitrary, the East was portrayed as irrational, uh, wild, often quote-unquote wild, right, or, or quote-unquote uncivilized. And Rousseau's dissertation, for any of you philosophy folks out there, Rousseau's own dissertation, you know, portrayed some indigenous cultures as over-sexualized and wild and uncivilized and not having the kind of educated family or, you know, civilized families that we might have in European cities. Of course, he was wrong about that. Um, but he did say that. For all the good he said, he also said that. Um, back to the Hobson quote, the, the East is portrayed as irrational, arbitrary, lazy, and unproductive. And then you end with, I think this quote from Hobson really connects with the main idea of the entire article and the three questions listed above. And, and I couldn't agree more. So um, on that note, back to the Hobson reading, if we were looking at just the opening pages, there is this section called The Illusion of Eurocentrism and Discovering the Oriental West. And I'm just going to read from there for a second. It is important to note that the Eurocentric and implicit, quote, triumphalist bias of our mainstream theories does not necessarily make them incorrect. Indeed, as the self-proclaimed Eurocentric scholar uh, David Landes has recently argued, there is actually very good reason for Eurocentrism because it is the West and not the East that has triumphed because... He claims only the Europeans managed to pioneer the breakthrough to capitalist modernity. Accordingly, Landis dismisses the anti-Eurocentric account as politically correct goodthink, quote-unquote, or europhobic, quote-unquote, or simply bad history. But, Hobson says, my central argument is that the Eurocentric history is history, his story, Eurocentric story is problematic, not because it is politically incorrect, but because it does not square with what really happened. David Landis in his self-proclaimed Eurocentric book forcefully disagrees. And then they have, uh, he has a debate about that and he talks about that. Right. And he says, he goes on to say a little later, um, and he's talking about his his differences with Landy's argument, and you all read for that um, for today, and the Portuguese discoverer Vasco da Gama, and the Cape of Good Hope, you know, a lot of our more modern day enslavement of human beings 
sadly started in the beautiful country of Portugal and kind of went from there uh, several hundred years ago, including then obviously into the United States for the last 400 years where we have uh, enslaved persons of color still to this day. And we can continue to talk about that when we talk about meritocracy. So he is going on to talk about the Portuguese discoverers, quote unquote discoverers. And, and you've already read um, about that. But he, you know, uh, Hobson writes, more generally, it is important to note that Eastern resource portfolios had a significant influence in each of the major European turning points. Most of the major technologies that enabled the European medieval agricultural revolution after 600 CE seem to have come across from the East, and they have evidence of that now. After 1000, the major technologies, ideas, and institutions that stimulated the various Western commercial production, financial, military, and navigational revolutions, as well as some of the Renaissance and the scientific revolution, were first developed in the East, but later assimilated by the Europeans and, of course, never given credit to where they may have first heard that from. After 1700, the major technologies and technological ideas that spurned on the British agricultural and industrial revolution all diffused across the from China. Moreover, Chinese ideas also helped stimulate the European Enlightenment. And it is precisely because the East and the West have been linked together in a single global cobweb ever since five, around 500 CE that we need to dispense with the Eurocentric assumption that these two entities can be represented as entirely separate and antithetical. And he goes on to say, it is no less important to note that to each of my points, a series of countermeasures are deployed, which enable, usually unwittingly, the retention of the Eurocentric vision. Thus, when Eurocentric writers concede that a certain idea or technology originated in the East first, they often resort to what might be called a specific Orientalist clause, which is what I was talking about earlier in the last segment. And you all read about all this, so I don't really want to belabor the point here uh, auditorily for you, but he does go on to talk about the ancient Greeks and the overlap with the Greek clause, which stipulates that the ancient Greeks were the original f- uh, f- front or font of mo- modern Western civilization. Uh, and You know, that is a very important discussion to have, especially um, from a Western philosophical point of view. And, you know, your professor here in Beyond Belief is trained, even though our quantum physicist, uh, you know, developed this course. And she's a brilliant, wonderful human being. And we are reshaping it as well. And they handed it over to a Western philosophy person. And I am trained in Western philosophy with a with a continental bend, a little heavier in con- what's known as continental philosophy, expanding the continents. Uh, and so... There's some there's some discussion that we if we were in class tonight, we would have been able to have about that. And maybe we can pick that up next Monday. Uh, A lot of new things did come from ancient Greece and the pre-Socratics in general. And the pre-Socratics are both east and west kind of thing. I mean, in general, that time period, what I mean is that time period, the what's known as the, the first scientists right of the west pre-Socrates, pre-Socratic, there's actually a lot of debate about 
so where some of the first Western philosophical ideas came from. And there is some really legitimate discussion that they came from Turkey. Some of those ideas came from Turkey, but also, um, which would be the East, right? But also Greece, ancient Greece, and that would be the West. But together, they created what we would call the modern world. Uh, and it, it kind of goes from there. And, he, and Hobson goes on to say, my conception of European agency also diverges from the pure materialist approaches of the extant anti-Eurocentric literature because it is grounded in the notion of identity, which in turn is a socially constructed phenomena. And herein lies a link with the first prong of my argument given that European identity has always been forged in a global context. So the discussion here and what we would have talked about tonight a little bit is what it means to form your identity in a global context. Is this just... Uh, it, what What is a social construction? Does it stop at just social construction of identity? You know, race is not, we're talking racism now, and we're going to go on to talk eugenics in the next few weeks and the history of the United States science and eugenics. Racism, you know, race, it's not real, but it is socially constructed. It's real on every institutional level and every societal level. So we wouldn't say race is real as in a hierarchy of races or cultures where one is above or better than the an, another, but we would definitely say that race is real on a social constructed, socially constructed level, and therefore thus plays a part in every area of our lives, every area of our lives. And to say that it was also in the idea of social construction was built within a global context as well is a separate really interesting discussion that we need to have. So if I don't say more about it tonight, remind me to pick back up with it next Monday. And the whole idea of imperialism here, and we can, with the little bit that I know, because you all can teach me as well and have your own bits to offer to all of this. And he goes on, Hobson, to say, in some, when we reveal the larger picture that Eurocentrism obscures... Then its pristine picture of Western civilization as autonomous, ingenious, and morally progressive appears more like Oscar Wilde's picture of Dorian Gray, whose real image has been hidden away from the viewer. My task, therefore, is to reveal this hidden picture and simultaneously resuscitate the Eastern story. In this way, I seek to undermine the Eurocentric notion of the triumphant West that lies either latently or explicitly at the heart of the mainstream account of the rise of the West. And again, going back to that idea of that the West is independent and ingenious and morally progressive, I'm not sure we can say we're very morally progressive here. Okay, freedom of speech, freedom of thought, freedom of assembly, right to bear arms, uh, freedom to a fair trial, um, right to remain silent, uh, all of these civil rights and constitutional rights that we have now today in the United States, which we are slowly losing, by the way, in many respects. Again, that's for another discussion. But all of that is very good. That's good stuff. You know, that's that's baseball and apple pie stuff. But 
it's not the whole picture. And that's Hobson's point. This, that is not the only thing we can talk about here. If you're going to say the West is so ingenious and morally progressive, how are you going to rationally justify or explain? Because it's not rational if you're trying to justify it. Um, but how are you going to rationally explain 400 years of enslavement of persons of color in the United States? to this day, in many ways. So there's a problem there, and we need to continue to talk about that. So I think it's time for a break. The existentialist and philosopher Simone de Beauvoir once said, there is only one thing it is to begin to speak yourself your own way. You have to say, I am against it, or I am for it, because if you say nothing, your silence is used by the one you are for or against. Now, I don't want this to go past uh, 45 minutes to an hour. I think that's plenty, and if we were talking about it together we would be going back and forth and then we would take a break in between our three-hour class and have lots of vibrant, amazing discussion. So and because you're just listening to this tonight, I'm not going to go too long, you know, over an hour. But if we were talking about this binary problem, East-West, and this bifurcation problem, right, Hobson says, it can hardly escape notice that these binary opposites are precisely the same categories that constitute the patriarchally constructed identity of quote-unquote right masculinity and quote-unquote femininity. That is, the modern West is akin to the constructed male, the East, the imagined female. This is no coincidence, because during the post-1700 period, Western identity was constructed as patriarchal and powerful, just think military might, right? While the East was simultaneously imagined as feminine, weak, helpless, in need of help, maybe colonizable, maybe we're going to go after them, like warmongers, etc., uh, etc., this led to the Orientalist representation of Asia, of an Asia, as, quote, lying passively in wait for Bonaparte, for only he, he goes on, Hobson says, goes on to say, can liberate her from her enslaved existence, an act of liberation which was subsequently dubbed, quote, the white man's burden, end quote. And many of you don't have that history, but some of you do. And you can look up that history of the white man's burden. Uh, and the dynamic, and then that chart on page 45, the dynamic West, inventive, ingenious, proactive, rational, scientific, disciplined, ordered, self-controlled, sane, sensible, mind-oriented, think of the mind-body problem here in philosophy, mind-oriented, paternal, independent, functional, Free, democratic, tolerant, honest, civilized, morally and economically progressive, and I would also say very uh, religious in a heteronormative way. We can add to that column.
And you know what I am speaking of when we talk about that. But again, here's the binary, the unchanging East. They won't become progressive and modern like us, et cetera, et cetera. The unchanging East, and here is their list, right? This is the imagined East. Imaginative, ignorant, passive, irrational, superstitious. We talked a lot about that already in our class. Ritualistic, lazy, chaotic, erratic, spontaneous, insane, emotional, body-oriented, exotic, and alluring, childlike, dependent, especially dependent on the West for help, right? Dysfunctional, enslaved, despotic, intolerant, corrupt, savage, barbaric, morally regressive, and economically stagnant. And of course, we know that this is not true for either side of that, those lists. But you can easily see what Hobson is saying here. And we are going to go on to feminist epistemology later in the semester, and some feminist epistemological science and feminist science. It is a thing. We already laughed about this in a respectful way. It is a thing. And it's a very legitimate area of philosophy and science that we need to study. And I'm very proud we get to study it as uh, your seniors getting ready to graduate in our class. Uh, he, but this, you could put the masculine on that side of the West, right? Uh, or the social construction of the identity masculine. And you can sadly put... And I don't mean we should put, but we have put, sadly, the socially constructed, quote unquote, woman or feminine on the right of that list. And that is what Hobson is talking about. That is no mistake. That has been set up that way so that the powers that be, particularly the category and demographic white and male, often, right, not always, but often, ends up having that demographic fall on that side of the West, and then everybody else, including woman, on the other side of it, right? So these are the, these are, I, I can give you a very clear example that I know you would all understand and relate to, because I've used it in class before, and we've talked about it in other classes, lower level classes that, and students already knew what I was talking about. So uh, no danger here in using the example of um, where we say that we trust men because of their minds, their ideas, their rationality, but not as much women because of their emotionality and their emotion and lack of control of the emotions, right? I remember when I used this example before Obama was running for president the first time around, and I don't care what side of the fence you're on here, uh, it's up to you. It's a democratic society. It's up to you. And that is a nice part of our society that you get to decide for yourself. I hope we never lose that. But it was when Obama was running for president the first time around, and he was running against Hillary Clinton. And I came into class and I was teaching at Duquesne University, some freshman intro level class, sophomores, that kind of thing intro to philosophy and I said what's all the everybody was all excited and it was like eight in the morning too nine in the morning right everybody's all excited what's a, what's going on everybody's all awake and every folks were excited because they were saying a couple folks were saying at the time well you know it's finally um about race and gender you know Obama and Hillary well it's always been about race and gender our presidents have been white 
that's Caucasian, European, American, right? That's, that's uh, a race. And they've been male. That's a gender. But that problem, if we miss that point, and if we don't want to talk about that, that's exactly what Hobson is getting at here in this section of your reading anyway. And then also, folks, some folks were saying, well, we don't want Hillary, and this was 10 years ago, right? 15 years ago kind of thing. Well, we don't want Hillary because, you know, she's going to, it's going to be that time of month and she's going to have her hand on the, she's going to, she's going to go to war unnecessarily and have her hand on the button, so to speak. And are you kidding me? Are you really, like, are we really saying this right now? Not only because of how biased and uninformed that is, but also how stereotypical of putting women in their place and off to that side of the emotional you know, non-rational or irrational wreck, but also really, really uninformed because Hillary Clinton at the time was in her part of her life where she's in menopause. So they were referring to her menstrual cycle and her emotionality and that wouldn't apply to her. But people didn't logically, a couple folks didn't logically think about that. So we really have to be careful here in the kind of logic we're using and in being honest about what social construction of identity means. And Hobson is pointing to that in the middle of your essay. And I think you should pay attention to that chart very closely. So... If we're going to wrap up tonight's class, and I told you I would get this up online before 8 p.m., he goes on to say, It is no coincidence that the social sciences emerged most fully in the 19th century at the time when this process of reimagining Western identity reached its uh, apple, I can't say this word, <laughs> so there's my uh, auditory processing disorder problem, but uh, A-P-O-G-E-E, right? Uh, for by then, the Europeans had intellectually divided the whole world into the two antithetical compartments, but rather than critique this Orientalist and Essentialist West-East divide, Orthodox Western social scientists from the 19th century down to the present not only accepted this polarized separation as self-evidently true, but inscribed it into their theories of the rise of the West and the origins of capitalist modernity. And then he goes on to explain how that happened and how and how it came from some Greek ideas, some Renaissance ideas, and also Eric Wolf he mentions. And I already put in a little bit of good uh, Greek commentary in this uh, podcast tonight, Thomas Nail's reference to Logos and, you know, how we need to rethink those ideas. And I think that they're very helpful and very current. And that book just came out, by the way, a year or two ago, not even, I think a year ago. Uh, He's talking about what this means, what a Promethean quality is. Uh, While Eastern societies are sometimes discussed, they clearly lie outside the mainstream story. 
And it is often the case that if the East is discussed at all, it is discussed in separate sections. Accordingly, one could focus on the Western sections and get the main story. Thus, Eastern, you know, quote, like in scare quotes, thus Eastern societies basically appear as an aside or as an irrelevant footnote. But this aside is important, not because it says little about the East, which it you know, <laughs> all the problems that are there, but because also it describes only the inherent regressive properties that blocked its progress. Once more, this provides a very powerful confirmation of Western superiority and why, and he's saying that in scare quotes again, and why the triumph of the West, quote unquote, was but a uh, fate accompli, right? And yeah, I'm not going to, you know, you can look that up. Look that up, look that phrase up. He goes on to talk about Ruth Benedict and the Orientalist foundations of Marxism. And I think the Karl Marx stuff is where we can pick up and the Communist Manifesto next week. I think this is, I want to do some more prep for you all on that as well. Um, as you know, it's been a difficult past few weeks for all of us particularly difficult for those who are going through <laughs> any sort of illness or internet problems or anything related to lo job loss, um, stress, all of it. So some of you wrote to me emails, many, all of you from class wrote emails to me tonight, and I thank you for that, and we've been going back and forth. And some of you have also said you really looked forward to class because you wanted some interaction, some socializing. So I do appreciate that. I'm here for you. I've given you my personal phone number. I will order you a pizza if you're hungry. You text me, let me know, any of it. Um, we're all going through this together. Um, many of us are in the same situation and we are starving for contact with others, communication, socializing, getting out, going to the park, even, um, seeing friends. You know, I had a friend I wanted to see recently. We had planned a visit and that had to get canceled and we have no idea when that is going to now happen this year. So this, these times are really sad and, if you want to know more about the Marx stuff, you can go back to some of the earlier podcasts. Uh, there's a couple comments here or there. Um, I will come back next week in our Monday night class with a little more commentary on that because I tend to have had teachers who are a little bit more informed and uh, generous to Marx's ideas. And, um, you know, Hobson says Marx's dismissal of the East was not confined to his numerous newspaper articles um, from 1848, 1862, and etc., and various pamphlets, but was fundamentally inscribed into the theoretical schema of his historical materialist approach. Now, I'm not sure I completely agree with that, but that's okay. And I want to talk about that. So maybe we can pick back up there next week, give you a little extra homework, give myself a little extra homework. Oh my God. And uh, we'll go from here. I will put up your next assignment beyond belief folks in your resources folder for next week. We're forging ahead onward superhero pose, right? And I will talk to you soon. So I'm going to leave you with some music and a last couple last thoughts. Bye. <laughs>
Bye. <laughs>